Hello and welcome to another episode of the Drill to Detail podcast and I'm your host Mark Whitman. Today I'm pleased to be joined by David Jayatilika from Delphi. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. For anybody who doesn't know you, just maybe explain what you do at the moment and um, the company that you formed recently. Sure. So I'm CEO and co-founder of Delphi Labs, which I've uh, founded with Michael Irvin, um, who used to work at LiveRamp. Um, and so together we're working on a new product which uses a combination of semantic layers and large language models to provide a uh, a natural language interface for data. Okay, so before we get into the detail of your product and, and large language models in general and AI and, and how it affects um, sort of analytics, um, you've got this interesting kind of backstory, I suppose. And you and I were both working at WorldPay at the same time. I think you're on the client side and I was yeah. um, in a, doing a consulting role. But maybe just kind of talk about um, how you ended up at doing what you're doing now and the route to that through uh, Metaplane as well. Sure. So um, I guess it starts with what I was when I was at uni, I did maths. And like most people at the time, looked for an internship, ended up in big four accounting. The part that I enjoyed about it was the analytical part and quickly moved on to my first analyst role, which was at Ocado. Uh, I think most people today have heard of Ocado. I, I, I always ask whether people have heard of heard of them because when I was there in 2010 not everyone had heard of them Um, but I think most people have now it's in grocery so I started there as a strategy and trading analyst and that's where I learned my sequel and uh, this was like pre-BI tools in the UK really like they they were one of the first companies to play around with Tableau in the UK and I I was there when they were looking at it Um, then I moved on to WorldPay, which is, yeah, I guess where we both uh, were there at the same time with our you know, mutual colleague, Chris Tab. Um, I was there as uh, what, what, was, what would be a data analyst, I suppose, in role title, but I was doing you know, different things from data engineering, analytics engineering there as well, because that was just what was required to do the job. Um, and I, that was the first place I built a, a data team focused on uh, portfolio pricing. And I moved from there back into more of a mainstream data role at a fintech called Elevate Credit. And there was a head of BI and analytics looking after a, a mixed team of analysts and data scientists. Um, and then from there, I moved to List. And at List, I started with a team of two, uh, which were just in BI and then ended with being senior director of data, looking after a 25 person uh, data organization, team of teams, uh, doing everything from data science, data engineering, analytics, engineering, and analytics. And that's kind of like my jumping off point into startup land. Um, end up at uh, a company called Avora, helping a friend of mine uh, spin out a startup to focus on uh metrics observability is the way i describe it where we're observing a trend of a metric and doing anomaly detection on that trend to suggest and find reasons for changes in the trend uh unfortunately it was just a very difficult time difficult circumstances for the for the company and the product we couldn't my my main role there was to raise money didn't didn't end up doing that but learned a lot from it and then finally uh i was before this role at Delphi, I was at Metaplane being head of data there. It's kind of a strange role, head of data at a data SaaS startup. I was doing, I guess, many different things, including product management, developer relations, content, community, and a little bit of data, but mostly that data was to generate, that data work was to generate content. Mm. Interesting, interesting. So, <clears throat> so that, that, that's actually where I first met you. I think as well. I think we were at an yeah. event, or you were in the audience at an event. I think it was a Firebolt event. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think we got talking there, and um, and so after that, I tried out Metaplane. Thought it was quite interesting. But then we were going, and actually, I was keen to get you on the show anyway at that point. But then, but then it turned out you'd actually left there and started your new your startup, which just happened to be in two areas that I found particularly interesting. Yeah. So semantic models, 
um, which is something I've been working with for, for years now. And and also the new world, I suppose, of, of large language models and sort of AI and a lot of things that people now suddenly become very topical because of chat GPT. What we can do in this show then really is is look, in, look at, I suppose, two, those two things. So first of all, I suppose a foundational look at what semantic models are and how they contrast to, I suppose, just a sort of database schema. And also maybe a bit of a commentary on what's in the market at the moment. Yeah. And then we'll look at how that kind of links in with the world of AI and LLMs. And your, I suppose your vision really for Delphi Labs and how that's going to turn out into a product in time. But let's start off really with with, with semantic, uh, semantic models, semantic layers. For anybody who um, probably has heard of it, but we could do with a definition of what we're talking about. What do you define a semantic model and a semantic layer as being? So I think at its core, uh, a semantic layer uh, maps real-world entities, so things like customers, orders, revenue, to a logical data structure. You know, this could be on a database, this could be files on disk, um, but essentially it, it abstracts away from the user needing or the system needing to think about the structure of the data um, in storage, and it 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 you know it's a way for that system or user to just ask for a metric or an entity and get the results they need. But how does that differ then from say a relational database schema that already is like an abstraction layer and already you know through declarative seek you can just ask what you want. So what, how how does it I suppose add value beyond what you get with the database schema? So I think with a with a database schema, you still have to write SQL. You know, you still have to know how to join, which fields to pull, and like often with these schemas, they're not clean. You you have to kind of know, oh, I need to pull this column and then filter it by this other column. Like that the whole point of a semantic layer is is that it's simple. You ask for the thing you want and then you maybe filter it, but those filters are exactly, you know, oh, I want it for UK customers, right? It's not some filter to get around the structure of the data it's a filter to get to what you want so you talked about entities a moment ago so yeah. to what extent do semantic models and semantic layers need to understand what the data really means that a person is a person maybe a salesperson is a is a sort of variant of a person i mean is that part of what we're talking about as well yeah definitely so i think this is probably what i would say is the difference between a semantic layer and a metrics layer is is that a semantic layer will have this understanding of what an entity is rather than just the metrics and dimensions that those entities have to be accessible. So yes, absolutely. You could have something like a user or a customer or a person, and then those that entity is you know a real thing in the real world, but then it's also extensible and you can say, well, this person is actually a salesperson. So that's a subcategory of that entity. Um, or this this is a customer, which is a subcategory of a user. And so it's like an extension of a class, that, that sort of way of thinking. Okay. So I suppose to be good at semantic models and to understand it, it's as much about understanding language and the meaning of language, really, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Or it's even or even the meaning of uh, of this of the business or the organization's world, right? So if you understand the organization's world and the things that are in it, and then that then that's what that's what's required for the for understanding what should be in the semantic layer. <clears throat> so if we look at, I suppose, look at vendors that are in this space and products that are in this space, a semantic model is more, often in a product sense, is more than just maybe a, a, tran- a SQL translation layer. It's things like caching and API access. And yes. Where, where do they come into it? Why are, they, why are they typically thought of as being part of a semantic layer or semantic model? I think it's because that's how, because if you just have that core definition of a semantic model, which I described, great, you've described the world, but you can't, you can't get get at it. So you definitely need, first of all, an API to then be able to, you know, first of all, submit a request and then get a response. And then that then leads to needing access control because, you know, fundamentally not everyone should have access to everything in a semantic layer necessarily. Okay. And what about things like, obviously there are, there are table structures and columns and so on, but do you think things like, you mentioned measures, but things like hierarchies and, and uh, understanding I suppose, the relationship between attributes and levels and hierarchies, are they part of it as well in your mind? Yeah, I I think so. So I was recently looking at at scale um, and at scale is a a semantic layer that actually serves large enterprises like Netflix and Visa 
And they have these concepts of hierarchies. So I think dimensions in particular have these hierarchies. So you can have, you know, you can have like geography and that could have then country and then region and then city as like levels in the hierarchy. So yeah, definitely. There's a number of players in the market currently making noise. <clears throat> you've got DBT Labs, you've yeah. got Cube, and you've got the original, I suppose, in this new generation of products, kind of looker. So maybe just let's take a step through um, what your thoughts are on those various products and and kind of what they're trying to achieve. So going back to say Looker and LookML, so that was I suppose the first of the products of this generation of, yeah. of tools that were fo- that were big on this. So what was your take on Looker and LookML, and maybe some of the things they're trying to do now with their universal semantic model? So when I first experienced Looker, I think it was 2019 uh, when I joined List, who was uh, on on Looker, still are on Looker. Um, I, I was, you know, having come from like a Microsoft SQL background, and so the 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 only metrics that I, I'd ever seen was like SQL Server Analysis Services, which is like an OLAP cube and very very traditional. And then having seen Looker and the way you could define. Uh, things in code and it's almost a semantic layer except it doesn't really have true entities i was really amazed and the power of what you could do in it was was fantastic at the time and when when looker was a standalone company i think it was okay that it was tied into the looker product to an extent um but i think as as it's been bought by google um there's concern about it being tied in and there being lock-in. Google have now as well brought out Looker Modeler as its own API. When that's now decoupled from the Looker uh, front end, you can now uh, put other BI tools on top of it. Um, I think this is a good step forward. Although if you think about what GCP's like, uh, you know, main main goals are, it's driving GC spend on GCP, and that that's very 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 like. Uh, the gravity of that is around BigQuery, um, and so they, they'll this this you know in all likelihood they will want this as a mechanism for driving BigQuery spend. So even though I think it's good now that other BI tools can use the layer, I think you know if I would be worried if I wasn't on BigQuery trying to use this. Okay, okay, and of course the other the other big player in the market is DBT Labs and their move yeah, last last year to announce the semantic layer and and. Obviously, then there was an acquisition recently of Transform. Yeah. I mean, what's been your observation on the DBT metrics layer, then, then semantic model, and, and what they're doing now with, with that acquisition? So I think I've written about this a bit, but the, the DBT semantic layer's prior iteration had some very good uh, things about it. Like it did have entities. It had a, 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 a quite a strict way of defining metrics and dimensions and timeframes. But the problem was that it ended up similar to OLAP cubes or Tableau where there was no guarantee that you'd define a metric once and because of the because of how every metric needed to effectively have its own OLAP cube you could and and that that was always like a, a single dbt model that you could see quite quickly needing to have to pre-join everything for one particular metric and doing it again for a variant of the metric. It wasn't as uh, flexible as you'd want. And it was actually less flexible than Looker's uh, LookML, which, which, you know, defines joins and then has dynamic grain in the query. Um, And so that I think was a problem. And I think the whole, really the whole DBT community I think thought that that was a problem with it. And I think that's partly why it wasn't very well adopted. I think like Tristan quoted two and a half percent of DBT orgs were using the, the, the semantic layer in the previous iteration before they bought transform. Uh, I think, I think the acquisition of transform is excellent transform, you know, is definitely a, a very good semantic layer. It's, it's, it's up there with, uh, Cube and Lookamel, uh, if it's if not better than Lookamel, um, so I it's and it does allow you to define joins and have dynamic grain in your queries. It's you know it's it's uh, it's a good step forward for DBT for sure. What about the I suppose the fundamental thing that the semantic model is part of the 
the kind of data transformation layer and therefore to make any changes to that and add to it, you've got to start editing the project. I mean, I know obviously with even with things like Lightdash, that's even more of a case. Yeah. But do you think there's fundamentally a bit of a kind of a, 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 an issue there that to get end users to use it, that's not going to happen? I mean, what's your thoughts on that? So for me, yeah, to get end users, I think it, it probably is worse. But I think, you know, that what how many end users were actually writing LookML in Looker? Probably it's quite rare. I think actually, if you think about that, analytics engineers or data engineers were the ones adding to it. I think it's better because if you can write your transformation code, define what those models are, then define the semantic layer there in that same workflow, and then, like you mentioned, Lightdash, like, and then possibly define your your actual front end assets in the same workflow again, the the likelihood of you capturing any issues in development is much higher than if they're in three different places. Um, so I, I think that's a good thing. I think it's logical for the transformation work and the semantic layer definition work to be in the same place because there's the people looking after them are most likely the same people. The skill set required is the same as well. Okay, okay. And I suppose the third player that we've, my company has been using quite a bit recently is um, is Cube. Yes. So, so Cube, I suppose, is, is a bit different to the other two in that they are a standalone company that focuses purely on that semantic layer. But yeah. maybe just kind of what, what's, what's Cube and um, and what's your thoughts on, on that as a kind of concept and an approach? I think Cube are really impressive. Like we're talking to them at the moment. Um, yeah. Uh, they have, a, their semantic layer is very good in the way it's fine. It really reminds me of Looker, but just it's a bit better in, in of than LookML, I think. Uh, and because, you know, they've had a bit more time than DBT to to work, you know, they've been founded in 2019 and they've been working on this solidly. Like they've got really good features, access control, caching, like their caching is like state of the art. They just re they just they they built something new because Redis wasn't good enough. Right? You know, that's that's pretty amazing. Um and they've got access control like baked into the semantic layer, which is, you know, very, very good as well. Also, I think what's really interesting about Cube is I think they they understand that people will want to define the semantic layer with transformation. And that's why they've already enabled uh, using, you know, allowing people to define their semantic layer in the DBT format, but then being able to serve it using cube. And I think, you know, they'll continue that with a metric flow, which is the transform version as well. I think that will come out soon from cube. So I think cube, cube of cube are doing a really a good job i know that they're very heavily used in the embedded analytics space they've got thousands of github stars and since they've released their cloud product i think at the end of last year they've got hundreds of customers on it already so i think they're going to do very well and i you know they're, they're they take they're taking like a very smart like uh, viewpoint of well there's no need to like try and get people to decide between writing dbt uh semantic logic or cube semantic logic. they can do either or it doesn't matter Interesting, interesting. In fact, they're the next people on the show, so I'm recording an episode with them yeah. uh, next week. So uh, before we move on to the next topic, do you think maybe the future is BI tools and, and ELT tools will support multiple sort of semantic layers? I noticed that with the announcements around universal semantic model that they meant they said that ThoughtSpot are going to support that as well. And I know they already said they'll support the DBT metrics layer. Yeah. So maybe it's not necessarily a kind of one or the other. It's a multiple thing, do you think? I think so. And I think the problem is uh, is that data team leads are very wary of having their semantic layer locked into a, some other application. And this is something I found when I was uh, trying to then deal with Looker is, oh, suddenly you realize that there's a whole monolithic piece of software that you've put inside your semantic layer and you can't get away you know, it's very difficult for you to consider um, moving from from that product because it, it's so hard to move that that logic. So I think anyone who's been a data team lead and used one of those tools will be thinking about, well, how can I protect myself from this in the future? And using Cube, using DBT, uh, using AtScale, uh, even using Looker Modeler is a step forward to protecting yourself and then not needing to be, not being beholden to paying whatever that BI tool chooses to charge you. 
Okay. Okay. Fantastic. So let, let's move on to this topic of large language models and and and, and ChatGPT and, and AI. So, right. So just frame again for the listeners' benefit. Um, define what a large language model is, and um, and maybe kind of just outline some of the interest that's been on this recently. Yeah. So I I I, I won't profess to be an expert in large language models, but essentially they're these new uh, uh, generation of uh, models. Some people are calling them AI. I'm not sure they're true. They're true AI, they, but essentially they can generate content like uh, text or images in in ways that we've we've never been able to like even dream of before. And fun, you can you know you've seen people ask you know ask them questions like show me an image in the you know like I, I recently saw. Uh, a mid journey. So mid journey uses uh, a large language model in the background. Someone recently posted an image of uh, Big Ben in the style of Van Gogh, and it was actually amazing. Like, um, and you know, and I've used mid journey before, uh, and and I guess ChatGPT is the text equivalent of this, where you can say, "Give me, give me, write me a paragraph on this topic, or write me a code snippet on this in this language to do this thing." And and it can do it, and it's learnt from, uh, and you know I think fundamentally some of the things that have enabled these models is data engineering. They've been, they've they've been able to synthesize training data sets that are of really high quality that the models can learn from, and that's I think the key part of how they've been successful. Okay, so is, I think it's based. I think the basic underlying technology is, is I think it's like Markov chains, isn't it? Where where you've got if you know if you've got a sequence of things or you've got a pattern of things that have happened, being able to predict what the like the next word is or the next or the answer to this thing. And so you know, given a you know, given for example a, a question, then if you've had enough training data, you would know what the the most likely answer to that question would be. And if you have enough input data then you can start to sort of to generate things from there that you know even weren't even there before really well to an extent anyway maybe um trying to think of an example here how, how would this apply do you think to things like bi and so on first of all or what what do you think some of the initial use cases for this would be in our world so i i think you know um we've seen some of these come out and one of the first things people have tried to do is generate sql directly yes. yeah from a question yeah and so there's actually, I think there's actually tens now, and you even see multiple of them in like the, the last YC batch of companies that are just doing text to SQL. And you know, there's you know some pretty famous names in there uh, already. Uh, so that that's like one of the first things, and it's probably one of the most simple things to do is is translate like a natural language query. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where else will we see them? I could imagine things like uh, ELT potentially, because if you think about a lot of ELT is uh, an API request to some third-party system, and mm -hmm. then pulling the data and then pushing it somewhere else. Like you could imagine certainly the original API request being quite straightforward for an LLM to generate, mm -hmm. um, because mm -hmm. in some ways, like a semantic layer request, it's it's a very structured uh, request that it's got to make with very narrow um, possibilities. So, and from what we've seen with Delphi, it's they do quite well at generating those requests. A couple of things we, we've been doing. One of the first uses was we used it to be able to give us the descriptions to go with measures in Looker, so and in DBT for every word like say net profit or anything anything where there is a word that is commonly used. We'd used it via the API then to go and actually generate as part of you know part of a project the descriptions, for example, or even things like documentation. So, you know, that's one basic way of doing it. Um, but recently something I did was I thought, well, can I use this? Can I use ChatGPT to build a DBT package? Yeah. Um, and it's it was interesting. I mean, certainly you go you go in there and you with a prompt you say things like, you know, imagine you're an analytics engineer building a um, a DBT package for a consulting company in our case. Um, and, you know, it's uncannily good at the start. You know, you go in there and it, you ask those questions and it will come back to you. And I say maybe, for example, the uh, one of the sources is harvest, the other source is, is zero. You know, it would know what the table structures are in the exports from, say, Fivetran for those. And it would be able to sort of to come up with a, a data model and some mappings and, and so on there. 
Um, and, and it's and it's you know it, it, in some respects it's like having a text conversation with an outsourced developer, for example. Um, but it's but it's also it's I suppose what it's doing it's not necessarily coming up with anything any new insights. It's 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 maybe regurgitating stuff and coming up with new stuff that's a, that's a that's a variant of that. One of the issues I found though was um, what are called um, hallucination. Is this something maybe you can explain what they are, um, David? Yeah. So I think I've heard that phrase. So I think um, with hallucinations, and I think it's tip, it's it's very typical when you ask it um, not to generate code but to generate facts that it will it will just it will just generate an answer. Yeah. And because it will always generate an answer, whether it has like a if it has the actual information or not, it will just make something up that sounds like a good answer. And I, I think that's I think that's generally generally what people say is hallucination. And I don't I I'm not sure why it happens. I'm not sure anyone knows exactly why any one hallucination happens. It could be that the training data has has incorrect information in, or it could just be that it's just trying to generate something that sounds right and it, it doesn't really matter about the facts underneath. Yeah, yeah. It's um I think I think the phrase I've heard used is a confident bullshitter in some respects. Like it's it's like a classic classic consultant really, someone who's very confident. <laughs> um but it's um the example I had was I asked it to come up with some code that would um that would do a fuzzy match on um on names and company name. And it said, well in BigQuery you can use this function called Jarrow Winkler function. And it very confidently yeah. gave me the code for that. But there isn't there is no such function for yeah. that, and I think an analogy I've heard in the past, someone saying is it's a bit like if your arm was if you had your arm amputated, and your your brain's model of your body um, still has the arm there, and so it would you know you would feel pain, you would think your arm is there. It takes a while for the model to adjust for the fact that your arm isn't there, and in a way that's kind of what it's doing, what what these models are doing with say its own thoughts it, it kind of has a mental model of the world and it will take a while for that model to be adjusted by feedback saying no, that's incorrect and so on i suppose that is why uh open ai put out put their put their products out now for open testing yeah yeah i think that's right uh and i, I with that example you mentioned like i think it's got that dichotomy of knowing that this jarrow winkler is the right way to do this and but then you want it to be done in bigquery and it hasn't put two and two together that that you can't do it or you, if you wanted to do it on bigquery you'd have to write that as a udf or something and it hasn't figured out that that's what it needs to do yes okay so so in the only when i was looking at your um your linkedin page and some of your sort of blogs you you mentioned a16 a16 sort of um, article recently that was that was quite fundamental in the thinking that you've been doing around around delphi right so maybe just explain what the article was and what it's trying yeah. to say and why that was influential for you yeah, so this A16 article was uh, about the topic of using these large language models in B2B applications. It wasn't specifically about data applications, it was just applications in general. But I think the principles completely hold true. And the way they described the, the situation is that right now there's this um, wave one of applications which are they what they call generative ai applications which is correct right you put in a prompt and you get information and you can generate a lot of information and content very quickly because it's very easy to make prompts and it generates a large amount of information from the prompts and i think in data this is going to dazzle people but it's also it's not really going to help them because i think what you'll find is just like with some of the text to SQL companies is that they'll give this to business users and they'll get many answers for questions, but they'll start to get different answers to the same question very quickly. And it's just going to cause confusion, I think, because if you just have many, many answers, no one knows what the truth is. It becomes very difficult to actually use it for as an insight. And then the article goes on to describe the second wave which is they call synth ai and what synth ai does is rather than generating lots of uh pieces of information uh it uses lots of information as inputs to generate fewer insights that are more uh like clear like almost like distillation of this information and i think and when i read this article i I realized that this was exactly what I was trying to articulate about Delphi throughout our fundraise, that this is why we're different to the text to SQL companies. Yes, people, the interface for the person is the same. They want to get an answer, so they ask a question, but the 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 we don't generate we don't specifically generate 
uh, large amount of content. What Delphi tries to do is, firstly, we will try to find a previous question that has been answered uh, and and find out, you know, maybe through th- uh, through methods like Jarrow Winkler on the text or maybe through semantic similarity of the question uh, to a previous question that we have answered this question before and the answer we gave was this and the, the person who asked it was uh, this other person, maybe who was your colleague. And so we want to start showing people, you know, consistent answers and previous answers that have been validated potentially. And so we've got answers that we've given before. We've got existing work. This, this could be a dashboard. This could be a notebook in hex or, or whatever, where we have semantic similarity to the question and we can offer this as a potential answer to the question as well. And finally, uh, we can we can generate a, a semantic re- request. So we don't connect to databases directly to generate brand new SQL queries. We we connect to semantic layers and generate a semantic layer request. Now, fundamentally, a semantic layer is like one of the most scalable ways that a data team can, you know, collate their information and and knowledge about the data. So we're leveraging that. We're synthesizing. Uh, insights from that information that already exists and that's that's i think the bedrock of of delphi is is both the llm and the semantic layer and i think that's exactly why we're actually a wave two synth ai application and not a, a wave one gen ai, gen AI application. okay okay so so obviously there's been a lot of conceptual stuff there Let, let's talk about the product itself so i mean i've i've tried so obviously like most people i've tried to do things like feeding yeah. feeding a kind of a dbt model into into jet gpt feeding a kind of like a csv file you know feeding that information in and obviously you get very get, you don't get very far with that um so maybe just tell us you know what it what is the user experience like with 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 delphi okay and how What's the user experience like and how does it kind of work under the covers? Because there's been a lot of, there's a lot of kind of buzzwords, a lot of technologies here, but how does it actually work under the covers? But let's walk, let's do that by walking through the user experience and then let's drill into it to go along. Yeah. So I think uh, the user experience is, is very similar to like the text to SQL companies. It's like, here's a, here's a box, but the, the box in our case is Slack. And if, if you refer to that A16 article at, at the end, it says, Synth AI is the start, but I think, but it says moving into the workflow is like how, it is how you make this like a, a moat. And that's exactly what we had thought from the outset is that we want to solve the whole workflow of how someone gets from asking a question and to getting an answer. And there's so many steps along the way if you know how analytics works. So yes, someone can ask a question, but then we go through these various stages of triage, you know, is this question similar to a previous question? And so we can do things like text similarity, semantic similarity. So if you think about semantic similarity, what you're doing is, is uh, you're either thinking about that question as a vector with embeddings that's similar to other vectors with embeddings. That's one way. Or you can find, well, what, items in the semantic layer or objects in the semantic layer are similar to this question. And then because you've got that for other questions, you can then say, well, the, the array of uh, of semantic objects is similar. So therefore they're semantically similar. And therefore we can suggest this as a solution. The se- that's a, so that's the second step of triage. Third step of triage would be, well, the same thing applies to not only previous questions, but existing work. So this could be a dashboard, it could be uh, a notebook or any other piece of work which has uh, semantic objects uh, uh, that are re- relative to it. And then finally, we can generate new work. But that's, it, as you can see, like we don't want to generate new content quickly. We'd rather do that sparingly and then add that to our learnings. So. The next step would be to generate a new semantic uh, layer request. So, you know, it could be, uh, you know, what someone could ask, what was my revenue by marketing channel for last week? And what we'll then do is because we've gone through that triage process and we know there wasn't a similar uh, piece of work or question to offer, we're going to make a new semantic request. But 
we also want to provide you know as much safety in the answer as possible so one of the things we already do today is we answer that we repeat the question back to the user much like an analyst would to you right today so we would say well by revenue we're going to assume you mean uh gross merchandise value net of refunds with promo codes applied by marketing channel you mean utm channel and by last week you mean uh the last week by order created date for example, right? And we'll repeat that back to the user, much like an analyst would today. And then the user can say, well, actually, no, that's not what I meant. I meant uh, by the order ship date, not the order created date for the last week. And I meant uh, I didn't want promo codes applied to the revenue. So let's get rid of that. And then you get you get to a point where the user is much more trust in what they're getting because they've been told what it means. And that's possible. That's only possible because of the semantic layer the semantic layer has this defined inside it and then we run the request and then they can access that information they can export it as a csv they can go and explore it in a bi tool if that's how they've integrated with us uh, and they can see you know they can see the request and if this doesn't do what they want it to do this is where the, we start involving human analysts so they can then ask for help from a human analyst if it still hasn't uh, given them what they want, or a human analyst can come and validate the the request as well. Because fundamentally, the highest risk part of the workflow is where a new request is made. So we want we want to reduce that risk by bringing in human analysts at this point to validate the request. And over time, those requests will start to become uh, less. Uh, new there'll be new less less of the time and so in our repository of questions that we've answered with these requests uh with these requests and responses we'll have validated uh a whole set of validated answers okay so where, where does where does the llm and say uh gpt4 come in there because it sounds like you know, the things you were saying at the start, looking back through the list of, of previous questions, looking for matches, you know, that sounds like the sort of thing you've had in the past with, say, Ask Looker and, and, and say, ThoughtSpot and so on. So where, where specifically does the LLM come into this, really? There's a few places. So, for example, generating embeddings, uh, generating the generating the the request of the semantic layer. So that, that's probably the key thing when we do that is to generate is that's, you know, we're using GPT-4 for that. Currently, we used Codex before. Um, and then finally, one of the things we also do is when we do generate the answer, if, if the person has asked for data, that's fine. They'll get data like as a CSV or, as, or, as an, or explore from here in your dashboard tool. But if they've actually just asked for a straightforward answer, like were we profitable last week, we will just, we can pipe the, the the output from the semantic layer into chat GPT again and interpret it for them. So we can just say, yes, last week you had $200 of profit, so you were profitable uh, last week. You know, that, that's the sort of thing we can do. That now, there is some kind of security concern over the last pipe because even though you're only giving chat GPT um, aggregated data about your business it's still potentially sensitive so we have that as something that's configurable on setup as to whether you want to allow that to happen or not um yeah okay so so you mentioned embeddings there okay so i've been playing around i've been playing around with a similar thing on our, our, our website where we have been using a, a service called mask my ask ai that that yeah. uses embeddings and it will work with chat gpt um to to include your data in the responses it, it it returns so can you explain what embeddings are and and whether we're training the chat gpt model or just giving it additional information how does that work so embeddings, so if you think about uh, representing something as a vector, uh, embed, so, uh, <laughs> so uh, a vector could be uh, about, say, an entity, for example. So it, <coughs> so it could be about a, a person. And one embedding could be uh, their gender. One embedding could be... Uh, their, geog their geography, one embedding, you know, all these different things. Now, that's a very human way to think about embeddings. Uh, the, the truth is, is that the way uh, an, a large language model would generate embeddings, you know, it would generate 
you know, hundreds of thousands of, of embeddings. And they, they may be very abstract. Like they could be, it could be something as strange as, if, especially when you're thinking generating embeddings about a text, it could be, oh, the, the, the fifth character versus the first character was, you know, 10 characters apart or something, something completely abstract that doesn't mean anything to anyone. But using those, using that huge number of embeddings, they can work out similarity between text very well. Okay, so so with your okay, so with your product, do does it pass the customer's data and their semantic model to ChatGPT, um, or is it kept separate? The reason I asked that is because I think there was a thing in the papers recently about Samsung. They were using ChatGPT to to do similar sort of work, and they ended up inadvertently passing all of their a whole chunk of their proprietary IP to ChatGPT, and it's now part of the model. So you you meant how much of how much of um, okay. The customer's data is passed to ChatGPT and potentially included in their training data. Um, the reason I mention this is because um, Samsung recently in the press for uh, inadvertently sending a load of their IP to ChatGPT um, and it became part of their, well, apparently became part of the training data. So, what's the separation there between that and how much data is passed to ChatGPT? Yeah. So, this is again, I think, a strength of yeah. our our method instead of just sending it your database schema and columns and all of that metadata. So we do need to send ChatGPT the objects from your metric, from your semantic layer. So Mm. these are the things that exist in your world, you know, customer entities, uh, users, whatever, and their attributes, their dimensions, their metrics. So those Mm. names, those have to get sent to the large language model for our system to work. but we don't have to send them yeah. actually any data because that I would classify as metadata to any organization. So our system can work entirely on metadata because we only send those objects and then we generate a, a request based on those objects. And then we use the request and then we don't even have to send the data to ChatGPT. Okay. Okay. I think I was reading again at the weekend that um, that if you use the API for, for ChatGPT, then you can choose to not have that data be used for kind of like for training purposes. I think it's something that because you're paying for it. Um, so I think I think certainly my take on it is that if you're a commercial service using using their OpenAI um, uh, sort of um, APIs for this, then you know then you're safe there really. But I think certainly if you were if you were sitting there with the ChatGPT web interface. And just using it to kind of like to 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 generate to answer your questions, just like any kind of consumer, that is when your data is potentially being used for training data. But certainly, if you're using the the API, then it's a different kind of category of of, it's commercial use, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what we do. Yeah. Question I'd have again then is really, um, how does this work, kind of commercially, and how does this work when you've got a tool like say, um, well, what 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 BI tools would you use this in conjunction with, really, and how would you then relate to that, and how would it work, I suppose, um, in a commercial and licensing sense and that sort of thing? So for today, we integrate with Lightdash, Metabase, yeah. Looker as BI tools, and then we integrate with Cube, uh, DBT Semantic Layer, yeah, as like the and that's the original DBT Semantic Layer. As as semantic layers, we are considering like looking at things like at scale in the future, and uh, then the new DBT semantic layer. But we're waiting for the new APIs to come out. Uh, from a licensing, when you say licensing point of view, do you mean in terms of what do you pay Delphi, or do you mean? Yeah, yeah, that really, I suppose, yeah. Yeah, I I think we had an idea of how to price it, and we've recently like spoken to some of our beta users about how they would expect us to price it, and actually they came up with a very similar uh, thought to us. So I think that sounds like a reasonable way. But essentially, for now, the way we're thinking about pricing it is on consumption, so based on uh, the number of questions you ask Delphi. But what we do is we'd have tiers. So you know, let's say a five hundred dollar a month tier which had 5000 questions that you could ask because we because our 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 first our current interface is in slack you know we we don't we number one we can't but we also don't really want to restrict the number of users who has who have access to delphi you know our whole mission is to allow the whole of an organization to have access to data and in particular people who are probably not comfortable using bi tools you know that would be like a a core audience for us so yeah we want anyone to be able to 
access Delphi. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sat through the um, the Loom video that's on your website, and the thing that it struck me most as is it's like having an analyst available on Slack to you who can just answer your questions, and rather than you going into a tool like Lightdash and creating some analysis and, and working out yourself, you ask this analyst who is smart enough to kind of double-check what you're asking about is the correct thing at the start, and then goes away and kind of comes back to the answer with you. So it's like having your own your own kind of analyst there. I mean, maybe maybe just kind of, if you maybe just mention that that Loom video, what it's trying to do and, and how that process works. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, this is our demo Loom video and it's Michael, it's Michael showing how Delphi interacts with a, with a person. So uh, it someone will ask Delphi a question and Delphi will then uh, clarify, you know, first of all, Delphi will try and show you existing work. So maybe it's a dashboard that you've already got built. And then if you say, no, it's not one of those. Um, uh, and then Delphi will generate a new request, but it won't just run the request before asking you about it. It will ask you, well, this is the request we're about to run. And it will tell that, speak that back to you in human language. Uh, and you can then say, yes, this is great or no, it needs work and I need to adjust it. Uh, and then finally, when you say yes, it will then run that request and give you the the results either as a CSV or explore in Lightdash or another BI tool. And yeah, that that's the that's the current workflow shown in the demo. Okay, okay. So I appreciate the product is early stages, and it's been a few months now since you you start mentioning it. But where do you see it going? What's the kind of within bounds of what you can talk about now? Where would you like to see this going, and what is I suppose are the, are the next problems to be solved in this space? So I think our mission is to solve that workflow, you know, and some people like I spe- I've spoken to some people and they call this like the shoulder tap problem about analysts being just disrupted. But I see it as like a two-sided problem. There's that, yes, analysts get disrupted by lots of ad hoc questions and they can't, they're not as productive as they'd like to be. But there's also the second part of that, which is that the stakeholder is either not even given access to the data because they, they, they're not one of the lucky people who have a, who has a seat in the BI tool. Uh, and they also just, they want quick answers to do their job. You know, is, you know, is it, is it a business stakeholder's job to know how to use a BI tool? I, I, you know, I think because there wasn't much of an option in order for there to be a scalable way to access data in the past, you, people have said, yes, it is their job to know how to use it. But I think we're moving away from that now. I think it will be the case that it's not their job to know how to use a BI tool. They should just be able to ask a question and get an answer that's safe that they can then go and do their job with. Um, okay. Yeah. So do you see this as being maybe the, the the actual final solution or the kind of – people have always been talking about self-service BI, and it's it's always been yeah. around the corner, and it's always been something that is a kind of goal. Do you think maybe this is what could, what could actually deliver that really? Or certainly yeah. – you know, yeah. What do you think on that? Yeah, I, I, I think this is the start of the end for that. So the large language models are improving very, very fast enough to the point where people are kind of not, you know, they're getting a bit excited and saying, do we need to pause development on them, which I don't agree with. Uh, but they, you know, they're getting better and better. And if you think about where Delphi will be, even just trying to do the same things we do today in 12 months, because we'll have more powerful models available to use, you know, you can see that self-serve will happen. You know, uh, we will be able to answer a, com- a completely non-technical user's question and give them a safe response. And it won't be every every time. And I think that's where human analysts will come in. And I think I, I, I don't see us just getting rid of data teams. I, I think, you know, that's, that's like part of the philosophy of some of the text to SQL companies that you don't need the analytics engineer, you don't need your analysts, we'll just do everything for you automatically. I just think that I don't agree with that philosophy. I just think you'll always need you'll always need analysts and maybe they just won't be doing those kind of rote or easy requests all the time. They'll they'll be focusing on refining the system and answering those more abstract questions like some you know I, I've seen analysts ask questions like should we do this activity as a business you know, and that it's, we're a very long way away from a large language model being able to because it needs to decompose that 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 thought into a number of different analytical pieces of work 
and then and that's like a sequential story which then leads to an answer that we're so far away from uh, a large language model being able to answer that kind of question so we, we, we need data we need data teams around uh, but we but you know our, our mission with Delphi is to supercharge those data teams really so so just to round things off then how do people find out more about Delphi um, and I suppose also what's your ideal customer what's your ideal customer and kind of um, sort of use case and so on, just so that you can refocus on the people that you can be most helpful for. I think right now our ideal customer is is probably a, a, a data team who have implemented the semantic layer. Mm-hmm. Like we we thought about in the future, like helping teams set up their semantic layers, and mm-hmm. I think that's probably a second act thing, like that maybe mm-hmm. we'll do ne- next year. I don't see us looking hitting that this year necessarily. Um, but yeah, so right now our ideal customer will be uh, a team who has a semantic layer set up, whether that's uh, Looker, Lightdash, mm. Metabase, or Cube, or the DBT semantic layer, like one of those five. Um, and yeah, so, and that they have this problem where most likely uh, they're, they're a smallish data team and they mm. have uh, many, many stakeholders who who hit them with questions yeah. like the typical data teams you know i think probably about five and mm. they they have a channel in slack where data yeah. people just ask yeah. them questions and this is exactly where we want delphi to live is in that channel and they can just ask delphi those questions fantastic yeah. okay. and where do people find out about the product then so we have delphihq.com so you can sign up to our waitlist if you want to try out the product uh or you can just contact uh, me on LinkedIn or Michael Irvin, my co-founder on LinkedIn as well. Uh, we're pretty active in the DBT and locally optimistic communities as well. So yeah, we, there's a few different ways to reach out to us. Okay. And when are we going to see you at an event in London? I think you go to most of the uh, analytics engineering ones and you've actually got your own one as well. So uh, are we going to see you at one of those yeah. soon? Yeah. So we have a London analytics meetup uh at the end of this month, it's going to be at Depop. I'm just like finalizing the details for the mm. meetup in invitation. But yeah, I regularly attend the London Analytics Engineering meetup and the London DBT meetups as well. So you can definitely see me at those. I'll, I'll be I'll be I'll be attending those as uh, whenever I can. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, David, thank you very much for coming on the show. Really interesting product, really topical as well. So thank you very much, and best of luck for the future. Thanks so much, Mark. 